how are you fulfilling a vision? What is that story? And can you tell that story concisely? When we very, well, at the very beginning, we have to tell the story of just vision, right? Because we don't have anything. As quickly as possible, that needs to transform to your customer story. The story is never about code science. The story is about our ISVs and what they achieve. The story is never about DocuSign. It is about the people that leveraged electronic signature to get through the pandemic so people could still buy houses, right? That is what's most important. Tell that story because you will find more people that suffer that pain and want to align to it. So to me, telling the story of the people who suffer and have used your product to achieve greatness, that's the entire, that is everything. What's happening, gang? This is your host, Ankit, and you're listening to the Forcepreneur Podcast. This episode is part of the PDO series. You all know about ISVs and SI partners, but how much do you really know about product development outsourcers? I, for one, came to know about them in 2019, and I've been in the ecosystem for almost 10 years. When I think of PDOs, I think of them as king makers rather than the heroes of the story. They usually do all the behind the scenes stuff. So in this series, we will try to uncover who are the people behind these PDOs, what do they do, and what should you do in case you want to start your own shop. This episode is not sponsored by anyone, but hey, I'm looking for one. More information on that later. If there was ever an award for the fastest booking of a recording session on this podcast, then it should go to our guest today. He and his team move so swiftly that it almost feels like a dream. He has a very intertwined work history, therefore I will let him decipher it for us. So without any further wait, let's welcome the CEO of Code Science. Hello, Brian. How are you doing today? Hey, I'm great. Thank you very much for having me on. The pleasure is all ours. So as I mentioned, you have a very intertwined work history. You were a founder and then uh, you joined as a solution architect as code science, and then you climbed up the ladder. So please decipher it for us. Well, the story actually gets more funny than it looks on paper. Uh, so I was uh, founder CEO of a company called Castfire, and we were incredibly early within the podcasting and video casting space. Um, through uh, RSS and the addition of attachments and you know the launch of podcasts, we, we saw a big gap around content management systems being able to treat not how do we publish on the web, but how do you actually publish audio and video content the same way that we think of publishing uh, text content. And so it was a template-based uh, publishing system. Uh, we bootstrapped that for many years. Uh, we powered all of Weblogs Inc. and AOL for all their blogs side. We pub, uh powered everything for major league soccer for cbs mobile um for wow. quite a few different properties across all their audio and video we did espn radio worldwide um it was great uh later on after selling that um i was just gonna fool around for a bit and one of my best friends from high school mike witherspoon had uh found a uh, code science and uh was on this path to try to recruit me to come work for him. And 
in explaining what they did of B2B uh, software and building that for ISVs, I asked what you know platform are you on? I love technology, Let's, I would love to do this. And he explained they were on Salesforce and the conversation went on for about five minutes and I finally stopped laughing. And I was like, no, really, what technology are you building on? And he was like, you have to come try this. Uh, so he recruited me to come in where I had used Salesforce as a customer, but never thought of it as a partner, as a platform for building on and uh, immediately fell in love with it. And it was more than the technology. The technology is awesome, but the built-in distribution, the alignment of go-to-market, the services that they provide for the ISVs won me over. And uh, it's been quite a ride almost 10 years now. Right. So please explain to people what are PDOs or you know product development outsourcers what do they do I think it's a very uncovered uh, partnership so to say like ISV and SI everybody knows who's an ISV and everybody know you know who's an SI as I said PDOs are more would you agree that PDOs are more like kingmakers or you know back of the curtain people like not not so much credit is given to them right yeah, we, we, we definitely don't like standing in the, the spotlight as much because it's not about us. Uh, I don't ever believe that it should be about us. I don't believe that we do the majority of the work the ISV does. We're there to support. Um, and you identified it properly in the beginning. You have two types of partners that you think of within the partner ecosystem, the ISV and the SI, both of which are serving end customers. Right. So an SI is helping to configure and deploy. Majority of it is Salesforce product, but you also are deploying ISV product. And the ISV is deploying product either to Salesforce customers in the case of ISV force or in the case of OEM or reseller directly to customers themselves. There's a sliver right in the middle, about 30 companies called PDO that services the ISVs to help them build product and uh, get that to market. Uh, it was started about 13 years ago, somewhere in there, 15, 14 years ago, by uh, actually um, Avanish Sahai. Uh, at that time, it was Ron Huddleston was the SVP, Avanish was the VP for the App Exchange. And Avanish had seen this pattern of uh, SIs building product, but it wasn't very successful. And for a variety of reasons, one is the technical challenges. You know, in the in the ISV world, we don't know what an org looks like when we go to deploy, and it has to just work. Um, but there, there are also uh, business model challenges. Many of the SIs were launching products designed to create billable hours rather than to try to reduce the number of billable hours it takes to deploy. Um, and so that's where the ISV program, or excuse me, the PDO program was founded. And there were a, a handful of companies, I think it was three of them at the time, between uh, George and Epiphany, and he had comedy and code science. Uh, and that's been our tried and true path now for 13 years. Yeah. Shout out to George Kennessy for introducing us. And yeah, if you didn't check out the previous episode is with George. Um, right. Yeah. So as uh, George also told me that, you know, the PDO things really took off around 20, 2009, sorry, 2009, 2010. That's when it took out. So if we talk about now, as we mentioned, like there are a few big players in PDO, how do you differentiate yourself? Like, like I think it's very important in today's market to have a niche, even if you are an SI partner, like I interviewed Shell Black and they're focusing on financial services. So as in PDO, how are you creating your own niche? How is Code Science differentiating it from other ones? Yeah, 
Uh, it's a very interesting question. I think that there's very few, and in fact, I, I while I don't know every single PDO out there, I think the only two really that's fully specialized just in PDO are Epiphany and Code Science, and that is a choice for us. We our world revolves around ISVs, and we look at the ISV as the center of everything, and their entire life cycle is important to us. So. The one thing that that we, the lens we always approach the world at is that no one builds a product for fun. They build a product for commercial success. And you have to have an incredibly well-architected and designed product that aligns with Salesforce, if that's who you're going to market with, if you're not an OEM and uh, reseller, but aligns with their product roadmap. But that's only one third of the entire picture. In addition to that, you have to be able to deploy that product. You have to be able to sell that product. You have to be able to support that product. You have to be able to create this flywheel to really drive the product to commercial success. And so we as an organization focus on every single one of those areas to accelerate commercial success. And given that and given the size of our organization that allows us to to support businesses, um, we really focus on the strategic partners for Salesforce. So we work with Encino, we work with um, IQVIA, we work with Financial Force, we work across the product suite for those who are making a big strategic bet on the Salesforce platform. Um, and that's really what we're known for and where we excel. Right. I want to deviate just a little away from Salesforce. And because this you know, program or this podcast is also about entrepreneurship, you seem to be someone who's very keen on bootstrapping rather than this VC funding model of seed A, B, C, D. Uh, because your previous startup, you mentioned you bootstrapped and then you exited. And this one again is bootstrapped. So what's the philosophy it's a it's a very honest choice like or would you say bootstrapping as you mentioned a little before bootstrapping is for one kind of business whereas for SaaS, there's the funding like i'm also trying to bootstrap my own uh, you know startup skill proof we talked about and i think there is a time and a place for funding maybe i need it there and um bootstrapping also ian mentioned to me ian said vc money should be the last money that you should ever got because once you have vc money you are like on a ticking time bomb, like you need to execute or it explodes. So how, what's your th uh, theory on that or philosophy? Yeah, I don't think there's one model for anything. And, you know, we we went through funding rounds at, uh, at Castfire. We had term sheets. Um, we weren't satisfied with those and we decided to keep going. And, and in all honesty, uh, we went too long without taking funding uh, because by the time we came around, you had Uyala, you had so many different providers that were out there that were incredibly well-funded. Uh, and, and while we had a great customer base and we had very little attrition, we didn't have the story for that. And uh, I think ultimately that's what drove the sale for us was just looking at the competitive landscape and we had probably waited too long. In the case of Code Science, you know, I was not the founder uh, coming in and uh, was not my organization and still to this day, I'm not the, the majority shareholder, but uh, it's absolutely right. You know, the VC model puts you on a path for a certain type of exit. And if that's the company you're designed to be, then that's a fantastic exit for you. And you can power to that. But not every company is a VC backed company or should be. And in the case of Code Science, while there's always interest um, for investments 
uh, from the outside. Uh, to date, we've said no. To date, we've gone down the path of saying we're able to actually power this growth with the margins that we can reinvest in the organization. Um, and we're fortunate to do that. We're fortunate to be able to grow 50 plus percent on you know, what the company is actually generating because that's not a normal motion for most organizations. And so again, we're very, very fortunate and privileged to be able to do that. Um, the temptation's always there. I don't have a religion about it, to be honest. I think that I know, uh, I know founders who've done an incredible job and had incredible exits through bootstrapping and on the other side of raising hundreds of millions of dollars. And each is a very viable path. And I think that you need to look at what are the capital requirements for your organization. The worst that you can do is, in my opinion, is to overraise and set expectations too high too early. In the case of a Capado, in a case of Own Backup, in a case of Encino, you go down these large ecosystem players that have raised significantly and had are having great outcomes. Uh, their raises get uh, you know larger and larger, but it's because they've proven another series of their growth. They've proven right. part of product market fit. They've proven the ability to execute demand gen. They've proven the ability to scale a sales team. As they prove each one of those milestones, that unlocks more need for capital and more ability to actually get that capital in the door. And you, know, you get incredible funders like Insight Ventures who track that closely and have their finger on the pulse of this ecosystem. You know, they, beyond any other investor here, except for Salesforce Ventures, really know exactly what's operating, how it's operating, and how to work the Salesforce channel. And they're just taking advantage of that from an investment perspective. Nice. Yeah, um, I spoke to Ted too, and I also talked about this huge round. And I was like, do you really think you can justify the valuation? And I went, 100 million is a lot of money for a Salesforce startup. And he was like, well, now we are also planning to diversify. And um, I mean, he mentioned there's no secret about it. He mentioned that they are like also planning to see what DevOps they can do outside of Salesforce, you know, Amazon and all the other cloud, like they want to be a centralized cloud. So if you're raising that kind of money, as you said, then you're also raising the bar for yourself because Salesforce ecosystem, I'm not saying it's small, it's big, but 100 million is a lot of money to raise, you know? It is, but 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 this market is big enough for that. You can build something focused in this market and be that big. Um, it is a lot of money, but this market is that big, right? We talk about competing with Salesforce or channel conflict or any of that. They've got 160,000 customers. Right, right, right. right. How many other B2B SaaS companies can say they have 160,000 customers? That is, for many, more market than they'll ever have. But I think the more important story, if you look at Own Backup, if you look at Capato, in both of these cases, there's this new model, which is the value proposition for building on Salesforce is how quickly you get to market, how quickly you learn that market, aligning your go-to-market. You know, Trisha Price from Encino calls it the blue halo, that when you align your product and your go-to-market with Salesforce, you get this lift that you would never get as a startup. You can sell to enterprise companies that you should not be selling to yet. You get a level of trust to work with them. And what they're proving out at Own Backup and Capado is we'll do that to launch to a serious level where we are a serious, you know, a series B startup. And from there, move off platform. And not to say we're giving up on Salesforce, but net add 
everything else. So own backup, we back up your Salesforce orgs. Where are they going? We back up any of your corporate data. Right, right, right. Capado, we do your Salesforce, Salesforce DevOps. Huge gap within the, in the ecosystem. And now, hey, now that your IT shop is using us, we want you to use us for all of the other use cases. This is just fantastic spread of your product. And to me, we're going to see dozens of those types of companies that come out, solve the product first on Salesforce, then expand to all the other markets. Right. Another bootstrap example is Elements. So Elements has raised some money, but it has only been friends and family. Uh, so they have also not raised anything. And I think Ian also had a good exit last time. So he's pretty loaded. <laughs> All right. Yeah. So you are not um, uh, quickly another question. So you are not a founder CEO. You are an, you know, a lateral incoming CEO. How, and most of the guests that I have had have usually been like, you know, founder CEOs, for example, George or Ian. So how does that work? Um, especially in, I mean, court science is not young, it's pretty mature, but it's still very young compared to, you know, Salesforce or the startup world. And how did that happen? Why did you step in? Yeah, so there were actually two gentlemen that founded it, Mike Witherspoon and Tim Youngblood. And uh, I think with, you know, they had been early employees of Blue Wolf and they'd worked next to each other. They left there and they came and started Code Science. And, you know, they had left Blue Wolf as Blue Wolf started seeing the inflection points of growth and said, we really want to focus on something small. And if we ever get this to 2022 people, it'll be a huge roaring success for us and a great lifestyle business. And uh, unfortunately, I came in at like eight or nine as a solution architect. And again, I, I fell in love with it. And I, I remember there were just some very, very funny moments early on. I remember being at an ISV event or ISV team event and Ron Huddleston, who, as I said, was the SVP. Uh, grabbed me at one point and said, you guys have to grow. Like, we are growing so fast. I need you bigger. I need you to do more stuff. And I was looking around at Mike, like, how are we not growing faster? And he was like, well, we just want to stay small. So I just kept pushing and kept pushing. And uh, we, we blew past 20. <laughs> we blew past 30. And uh, at that point for Tim, he was like, Hey, this is getting pretty large and I'm going to start doing some other things out here. And, and so he actually retired from the, from the organization. And then we kept going and Mike was the CEO and doing an awesome job. And we got to 40 approaching 50 people. And Mike was like, Hey, this is starting to outgrow where I really am comfortable as that leader for it. And so stepped in at that point. And, you know, Mike and I, as I said, we've known each other since high school. I was a Navy brat, he was an Army brat, and uh, we both moved into Fairfax, Virginia, and fast friends, and we've always had that basis of knowing each other for 30, 40 years and being best friends. And so, you know, it is, all of those situations are built on trust. They are built on trust and transparency and open communication, and while, you know, I've, as Ted, I've done the founder-CEO side, and now I've done the CEO side, the end of motion for me is not significantly different. There are more stakeholders now, right? I'm constantly in a motion of having open communication with Mike. He is my business partner, um, having communication across the different stakeholders that, you know, that are in ownership. Uh, but it is about leading a healthy organization. And I find that if you start with your priorities, your values, you focus on culture, you focus on the humans that make up your organization, that is how you achieve results. 
And in doing that, you can set a tone and an expectation for here's who we're going to be, why we exist in the world. I mean, it, you're just trying to build a healthy organization. And if you can do that, it can make working with everybody else that's involved, all your stake, stakeholders, a much smoother process. Um, I think I've been doing it long enough that I, I don't realize everything that's that's unique to the role. Right, right, uh, right. And so I probably discount how much work it takes. But I think the focus should always be the customers that you serve, but most importantly, the humans that are along, along this journey with you. Uh, and that's why in our case, setting the team as our number one priority is, uh, is highly influential for me. Like that, that defines our ability to create change in the world for our customers and clients. Nice. I will quickly ask one more question before we move towards the community, because this is going good. So you were a CEO before, and then you decided I'm now going to be a solution architect. Many people would look like, hey, I was the successful and you had a successful exit. So I'm pretty sure like, you know, money was not a reason, like it was the job. But many people, you know, think that going down a step is, is, is like taking a step back in your career and like, you know, what are you doing? Because you were like at the top of the game, as you mentioned. So tell us a little more about that. And I personally think I I don't look at the title. I look at the people that I want to work or I was just talking the other day and I said, I look at the job later. I first look at my boss with whom I have to work because I, I can take teach the skills, but I can learn more from the person rather than what I will learn at the job. So for me, it's very important who's my boss. And, but yeah, you took that step down. Like I, you know, from a CEO to a solution architect, like you later became the chief of strategy. So what was that decision like? Well, I never saw it as a step down. I saw it as uh, taking a break from all that responsibility, to be honest. Uh, after that run, uh, we had a new, uh, you know, our first son, uh, and it felt good not to be in that captain's chair for a while. It felt good. But more importantly to me, it, it, what you were saying there around, it's the role, it's the opportunity. That's what was yeah. important. Right. It was, you know, b the role of PDO and especially in leadership at PDO and project leadership is you're working with incredible entrepreneurs every single day. That is your job. Your job is to work with Pierre. Your job is to work with, you know, you go down the list of these incredible entrepreneurs and every day you get to learn from them. You get to collaborate with them. You get to be inspired by them. You get to inspire them. And that opportunity for me happens regardless of your title. Our product owners are working directly with decision makers at these incredible companies. Our you know, head of QA will sit down and have those meetings. That exposure, that experience drives so much career growth, thought progression. That is what's inspiring about being at a PDO is it is about being around these entrepreneurs. And it's not just the dream. It's not that they see the world different. And it's not that they have a vision for it and communicate it crisply. It's that they also execute. They are relentless about getting to that vision. And to be around that and to be inspired by that and to be participate in that, that's awesome. So for me, it wasn't a step down. It was, it was aligning to where I want to be. Hello, dear listeners. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this and all other episodes. I really appreciate it. As I mentioned before, we are looking for a sponsor now. 
So here is some information about how Forcepreneur can help you promote your product or services. Forcepreneur is Salesforce's first and only podcast focused on the business side of Salesforce ecosystem. We love the Salesforce technology, but we also love the economics of running a company. In the first year, I just interviewed founders. This year, I have started doing mini-series which focus on certain type or aspect of running a company, such as what does an ISV do or what is operations. Since we are not bound to a job role, our listeners include everyone. I mean developers, admin, consultant, analyst, architects, and of course, founders of Salesforce companies. We average around 1000 listens per month. Majority of our plays come from United States, followed by Germany slash EMEA, but we have listeners all across the globe, including Africa, to my surprise. There's also a problem in the ecosystem, hidden barriers, lack of female and non-binary representation. To overcome this, at least half of our episodes are from non-straight males, those that have particularly overcome the odds and can help broaden our perspective. By advertising with us, you support diversity and entrepreneurship in the ecosystem. So if you or your company or your employer have an app or a product or a service that you think can benefit with a little more reach, then I would urge you to get in contact with us. So go to forcepreneur.com forward slash sponsor to learn more about how we can help you promote your product or service and get in touch with us for more information. Thank you. And now enjoy the rest of the episode. Let's come back a little bit to the Salesforce and the Ohana. So, you know, Salesforce has this very vibrant community. I mean, I have a scientific background and scientific community is also very vibrant, but it's like a bunch of nerds and everything is very serious. Like research is there's not that much fun, but Salesforce is like this fun and everybody's welcome, irrespective of your caste, creed, color, gender, you know, how important as a founder, how important it is for a budding entrepreneur like myself to, you know, um, look at this Ohana and how important it is for the business, for the growth, for hiring, for getting new customers. What's your perspective on that? Uh, I think Mark has built a magnificent engine for connecting people. And I was talking with an executive who left Salesforce uh, in the last year, who's now in another uh, public uh, technology company. And we were talking about some of the challenges. And I was asking how he's just reaching into that constituent base, that group of, of uh, customers they have, those users. And, and he was like, that's the biggest challenge is you don't have the Ohana. You don't have that connected group that cares about a, a, an outcome together. And so we were talking about what are methods that you can start implementing to drive that? How can you bring a new MVP program? How can you bring a community together of partners or of, of customers, of users? Um, because that vibrancy is growing a, a entire church full of people who are all preaching the same, the same gospel, right? This is a group of people who want Salesforce to succeed. Their feedback about product, even though at times it feels like it's deafening and, oh my gosh, they're all complaining. No way. Yeah. They care enough to give feedback. This is the best case scenario. 
And so it is, it is a great model, I think, for any company that's trying to build a product is to build a group of people that are so passionate that they are out carrying the message for you and they're giving you feedback all the time for how it can get better. It's right. fantastic. If anybody wants to understand how this Ohana works, so I got George's connection through uh, Victor, who basically created also the sound for the podcast and moved to Berlin. I met Victor at the Berlin Developer User Group, which I host, and Victor used to work for Epiphany, and that's how I got George, and through George, I got Brian. So that's like the circuit <laughs> completed, right? It is It is a very small ecosystem, right? And that's yeah. my, my thing for everybody when you're working in this ecosystem. At some point, you're going to be working together. Right. So be a good person. <laughs> right, be a good right, person. Yeah. Have a great reputation. Right. What goes around comes around, you know? Indeed. Right. So you mentioned a bunch of times, um, you know, um, a product and a story. And in today's world, it's also, as you just mentioned, like having an awesome product doesn't just cut the bill. You need a very good story to go along with it. So how important is that, especially in today's tech world, like with, you know, making a tech product is so easy. Like everybody can make literally a tech company in their garage, like the story part. Can you tell a little more about that for, you know, budding entrepreneurs? It's always about the story. It has always been about the story. It's it's always the story. The story has to exist, right? You have to be able to concisely tell your vision of the world and how you solve it. You know, the best product marketers in the world, uh, look at Steve Jobs, look at Bill Gates, look at Mark Benioff, right? Product marketing. How are you fulfilling a vision? What is that story? And can you tell that story concisely? When we very, well, at the very beginning, we have to tell the story of just vision, right? Because we don't have anything. As quickly as possible, that needs to transform to your customer story. The story is never about code science. The story is about our ISVs and what they achieve. The story is never about DocuSign. It is about the people that leveraged electronic signature to get through the pandemic so people could still buy houses, right? That is what's most important. Tell that story because you will find more people that suffer that pain and want to align to it. So to me, telling the story of the people who suffer and have used your product to, re to achieve greatness, yeah. that's the entire, that is everything. I think that's the title of your book or the subtitle of your book. <laughs> you know, I think you should write it. No, that's absolutely perfectly put. Like there's nothing more to add to that. So coming more now towards a little more on the personal side, you know, you have been multiple times entrepreneur. What has been your challenges running an organization or more specifically, like what are your challenges specific to PDOs that you would say and how did you overcome them? Well, I think recognizing that you have to go through constant personal growth is a humble experience, right? It is not about being right. It is not about getting it right the first time. It is not about knowing the future. Um, you want to be really good at predicting it, but you're in, on a constant personal growth mission. As I say to our executive team, our senior leadership team, uh, we cannot be the reason this company doesn't succeed. We can't be the reason that this holds back. And so, as I said earlier, you know, mentorship and advisors and executive coaches and, and psychologists, all of that to me is essential as a leader. It is not easy to be a human, let alone be a human that's leading an organization to constant change. 
and growth. And you need a support system for that. And whether you're a PDO, you're an ISV, you're a manufacturing company, it doesn't matter the type of company. Leadership is standing in front of others and aligning them to and and helping them execute to get to this new vision. And that for me is the most humbling every day. Right. And what would be your advice to budding forcepreneurs like top three tips, what should they take care of when starting here in this ecosystem, irrespective of PDO, SI, whatever? Well, you, you've got another technology in the product, right? And it's so broad at this point, yeah, you should specialize. Don't start and say, I do everything. Pick something and get great at it. Understand more than just the technology. Understand the business behind it as well understanding both of those sides. And, and while I'm a technologist to begin, I sit much more on the business end now. And uh, being fluent in technology, it doesn't scare me. I can have that conversation. I can still, even though people want me out of there, I still try to architect. Uh, <laughs> my team says I suck at it, but I can still, I can still hold my own. Um, Do you still code? But, Do you still code or have you given I, Personal <laughs> projects, nothing, nothing okay. for clients. No, okay. uh, no, I, I think Krishna Tata, who's our, our uh, director of technology, would would uh, she wouldn't accept any pull requests if I put it through. <laughs> OK, all right. Um, so I would start start there. So uh, stay focused Two, look at the business side of it. And three, start building a network. Start building a network of people and look for mentors, look for advisors, look for people to work with. Um, you, you know, again, it's at certain point, we all work with each other. And so your reputation and how you treat others and how you do things really matters. So focus on the technology, focus what's the business of that technology, and then build your network. Right. Now, this is a special question. The next one. Thank you for that. And it was amazing uh, for all the information that you gave. Now, this is a special question because I usually don't have guests who are also mentors and taking part in incubators. So as a mentor, when you are mentoring, you know, you are at 500 startups. And for those who don't know, they should check out 500 startups. Are 500 startups or tech stars also taking Salesforce companies? I've not seen anyone so far in those batches or a Y Combinator. There have been, there, there have right. been oh, over really? time. Um, and, you know, I, I, uh, I haven't done uh, much mentorships with 500 in a while. Uh, Dave McClure uh, uh, asked me to, to join as a mentor early on. And so when I lived in the Bay Area still, I was going down to the incubator years and years ago. Um, and it was fantastic. And again, being around entrepreneurs is the most energizing environment for, for me personally. Um, people who just... I love that they have a vision for how the world can be different. They're trying to execute in a certain way. They've got blinders on to reality. Like they don't even recognize how hard it is that they're trying to do. And yet they still get up. Um, and there's bad sides of that. And there's awesome sides of that. And so I find it very energy, energizing. Um, you know, the, it, you will see ISVs across all. But I think that the, the piece that we have to grasp is that there are every type of ISV within the Salesforce ecosystem. You have on the very large side, you have resellers. They're actually out reselling Salesforce and then they put their products on top of it. You have OEMs, right? A totally new, a different model within there. You have ISV force where you're selling to existing. So 
your choice of technology shouldn't be what determines whether or not you can be venture backed or whether or not that you can go into an incubator. These are just vehicles for you to bring something to the world, right? right, and, right. and in every case, someone has IPO'd in a different model. You have a Viva, you have an Encino. Financial Force, I'm sure, is on that path right now where it's been OEM. You have public companies that resell Salesforce and have their product on top. You have startups and you have companies that have IPO'd being ISV Force. So Slack was part of ISV Force, right? That came in and said, hey, we need to connect these two. So every model exists. And the definition of that model you know, that should never define whether or not I can work with somebody else. Right, right, right. So following on that mentorship question, my thing would be, what are the mistakes again and again that you see starting founders make? And uh, then I'll come with the follow up question is, what are the things a founder should take care of or always should you know, know when they're trying to raise capital or what are the things as an investor they're looking into that? Ted already said you should always know your numbers. He doesn't, he hates for entrepreneurs who don't know their numbers, like numbers should be on your tips. He even recommended me the book, The Silicon Valley Way. And I was like, I'm ordering it. So yeah, thank you, Ted. <laughs> have you read that book? Uh, I have not read that book. I, uh, I, I, and I'm a voracious reader. So I'll, I'll add that to my, uh, my list. Um, so that was a really, really broad uh, series of questions there. But I'll start with the first thing is you, it is about customers before it's about technology. All right. Right. We, especially when you are the founder and technologist and you come in, you're so excited to write code that you want to write and to solve problems that you want to solve. But it has to be about the customer. It always has to be about the customer. So, you know, getting to that place where it is customer first and you're testing with customers as early as possible and you're falling in love, you know, from into it, they have a line of fall in love with the problem, not the solution. And I just love that line, right? The problem that you're solving is more important than how you choose to solve it. And you have to just live that problem. You have to get immersed in that problem and, and find the people that have that and know their name and where they're at and what, how do they live life? Because you want to solve their problem. So you got to solve it in their way. Um, and you just have a new vision for how it can be solved. Uh, two is that the second time around, you will find out that what's more important is distribution. Right. How you distribute your product. And the earlier that you can think about distribution, the better off you're going to be. Right. You're bringing up Ted. What he got from that first to second time was how quickly he's going to get distribution in place, alignment with Salesforce, working with those teams, getting into market and growth. Right. The amount of revenue that he ended up doing at, at, at Job Science, he actually did in less than a year at Capado. And you can talk about product market fit, absolutely. You can talk about pricing. You can talk about so many different things. But it is focusing on distribution. So focus on your customers. Focus on distribution. If those are your areas and you know that inside and out, your chances of success are so much higher. Right. And what are the things that investors are looking for in usually younger startups? What are the things that a founder should always know or ready, be ready for when, you know, raising capital? Well, I, I, it all depends on the stage that we're talking about. For early round, it is, again, knowing your customer. What is the problem out there? Why is this a big problem? Right. If we're talking about raising funding, then we're not talking about solving a problem for a thousand people. 
Right. We are talking about larger markets, having a TAM, having a right a SAM in there. Um, you have to be able to really articulate, here's the problem that exists in the world. Here's how many people have that problem. Here's how why I am 10x better than any solution out there to solve that problem. There are very few original ideas anymore. There's tons of successful companies, but very few are actually original. Slack was not an original idea. No, no way. Right. I also, if you if you read Hard Thing about Hard Thing, Ben Horowitz says that he they passed on on Slack. Like Andreessen Horowitz never thought that Slack will be successful, and then it's and it's it's also it's a good thing that they share. So yeah, I also never thought Slack would be that successful. Yeah, I mean, you know, Salesforce was not an original idea. The model of SaaS was original, but the idea of CRM was not. Right. One last question for the founding founders, again, from my point of view, how do you suggest to price SaaS products? This is also Pandora's box, where everybody has their own ideas or permutations and combinations. I mean, we are hosted on Heroku and everything is shared. If we talk about what it's going to cost us, it's pretty much peanuts. Like, you know, I spend more money going out drinking cocktails with my girlfriend than what I'm playing for Heroku at this time. How do you price the SaaS product? I mean, it comes from the value point, but how do you put a number over there? Yeah, but I don't think that the technology cost, the actual infrastructure cost is what should control your pricing. Okay. Because what we're talking about in pricing is a conversation about value. What value do I add to you? By solving this problem, what value do you create for the other person? Time back, greater revenue growth, less red accounts, uh, faster time to close, better forecast. Well, you know, whatever your product solves is creating value. And what is that value? That's the conversation. It's never about what's my price. It's right. what value. Right. And and so you constantly are in this conversation about value. And what you learn through really mature sales process is if it comes down to price, you've failed in your sales process. Because early on, the, on, you didn't talk about value. Right. Okay. You weren't focused on value first, because if you prove out value and you show ROI, that's going to drive more for you than just talking on price. And in my opinion, you don't want to be the company that is selling on price point. There are plenty of successful companies to do. The dollar store is a public company, right? Like there are. And, but in my world for where we are at technology today, I don't want to be in the race to the bottom. I want to be in the race to creating value and change and uh, aligning to that is most important. So it's a very complex subject, but I think at the core of it, don't focus on price, focus on value. Absolutely. Perfect. Nice. That was Beautiful. Um, as you mentioned, you're a ferocious, uh, ferocious reader. Me too. Any books that you would suggest to the entrepreneurs or you can suggest, you know, two or three, you know, that we should read? I'll, I'll go back to where, where you just mentioned with Ben Horowitz's writing. I think the hard thing about hard things for me as a CEO uh, was uh, a shoulder to cry on, yeah. uh, motivation, uh, insights into where you think, wow, that that company, that situation, those things just work well. And to see underneath that, amazing. Um, 
Two, everything that right now Steve Sanofsky, again, at A16Z, uh, is writing. So Steve uh, grew up on the Microsoft side, so came out of C++ and went in and eventually was the GM of Office and then GM of Windows itself. Um, he was the first TA for, for Bill Gates. His writing and his writing about organizational change and their transformation from a functional organization to a business unit organization within uh, the uh, office, all of that writing is absolutely amazing for me. I learned so much, again, getting that inside insight to the behind the scenes story. Um, so those are just two quick ones there. Amazingly, both from Andreessen, but top of mind. I've I didn't know the second one. I'll definitely check that out. Last question, your favorite productivity habit? Oh, productivity habit. Uh, I got two, I have two. So we we uh, we started I started using Slack when they, they just made the pivot out of glitch. Um, and I, I'd known or met Stuart a couple of times before. And uh, so we've been using Slack now for well, for the lifetime of the tool. Uh, one is, uh, because we're a remote company, everybody is right now during the pandemic, but we're always remote is, uh, our managed by walking around is managed by listening to Slack. And so I'll go back and actually read channels and our channels are organized for the way that we do business. So it's around, we for every client project, we have client channels, we have internal and shared channels. We have DevOps channels. Like there's, there's a, quite a few channels in our, in our team. But I monitor that to look for language, to look for how people are interacting, to look at how client conversations are going so I can get a pulse of where the organization's at. It allows me to actually get a feel of what's happening on the front lines of the organization and not to participate, but to literally get feedback from that and to be able to have conversations across the leadership team with our clients, how we think things are going. You know, I have executive touch points with all of our major clients and we're able to give each other feedback and how we see the teams operating. What's the culture that we've created for them? So that's a big one for me. Uh, and the second is I take quite a few notes even if I never go back and read them for me, being able to recall in conversations as we move forward and, you know, we're all involved in hundreds and thousands of conversations, but just additional muscle memory to drive home salient facts or points or memories is essential. So I've got around me notebooks that I filled and sometimes I'll go back and look, but more often it's just to help lodge it in my brain. Thank you, Brian. That was really, really amazing. I definitely learned a lot and I feel energized after this to, you know, work on my startup even more. Before we finish, I have a surprise rabbit fire round for you. It's just this or that. Are you ready? Okay. Yep. Tea or coffee? Uh, coffee. Windows or Mac? Mac. GUI or CLI? Uh, both. If I have to go, uh, these days, probably GUI. All right. First thing you install in on a new machine. Chrome. Favorite programming language? JavaScript. Programming language you want to learn? Go. Uh, first web page that you browsed? No idea. <laughs> uh, I'm back. I, my first domain that I registered was in 1993. So All right. we're, we're going back uh, quite a ways there. Your favorite beer? Uh, I'm a wine guy, so probably pay Pinot Noir, scallop shelf. Nice. Your your favorite dreaming event? Either New York City or Dreamforce itself. 
Which city do you like to travel for business? London, New York, probably the top two. All right, best Dreamforce and why? Each one got better, so that was the last one I did. Every single one of them was great. 2019, I did wasn't speaking too much. I think I had like five slots and the rest wow. were just meetings wall to wall. So that was the most relaxed. Right. Last question, can Apple be dethroned? Yes. All right. Thank you, Brian. That was your time. If people want to get in touch with you or is Code Science hiring, how do they get in touch if they're looking for something? Yeah, codescience.com, codescience.com slash careers, lists out everything. We're always hiring, especially for those who have product and Salesforce expertise. Uh, at the party cow is my Twitter. Always a warning for people, pick your social media handles carefully when you're young. But yeah. at the party cow, that's a long story. Uh, or Brian at Code Science, if you need me. Right. Thank you, Brian. That was amazing. That's it for now, folks. Thanks for tuning in today. If you enjoyed this conversation, then you can also check out other episodes if you haven't done that already. If you have suggestions for a guest or a series, then please let me know and I would be more than happy to incorporate that. Please leave us a review on iTunes and share the podcast on your social media channels. Remember, sharing is caring. This is your host, Ankit, signing out. Bye-bye.